the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the webzine of the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, June 15, 2007, and I'm Adrian Burke. Paul Applebaum is professor of psychiatry and director of the Division of Psychiatry Law and Ethics in the Department of Psychiatry at the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Columbia University. He's authored numerous articles and books on law and ethics in clinical practice. He gave the following lecture about recent advances in behavioral genetics as part of a symposium called Great Minds at Work, which was hosted in April by the New York Academy of Sciences in collaboration with Wiley Blackwell, the publishers of the Annals of the New York Academy of Sciences. Good afternoon, everybody. As I set up here, let me disabuse you of two potential misconceptions that may flow from uh, the title of this event. Uh, One is, uh, I don't have a great mind, and the second is, I don't intend to do any work here this afternoon. It's much too beautiful a day for that. But what I am hoping to do is to share with you some interesting findings that have been floating around in the last couple of years in the world of behavioral genetics and are starting to find their way, in fact, quite quickly, finding their way into a broader realm, in particular the realms of law and criminology. Uh, I teach at the law school at Columbia as well as at the medical school and and see these uh, issues uh, resonating in both uh, venues. And I hope that, uh, at the very least, you'll find this uh, provocative of of thought about uh, where we're actually headed uh, in the future. So I'm going to begin by reviewing at least one of the major advances in behavioral uh, genetics that focuses on the predisposition to violence and other forms of criminal behavior, and then talk with you a little bit about uh, the implications. But first, by way of background, for some of you this will be overly simplistic and and already well known, but let me, uh, just to bring all of us up to the the same uh, uh, level here, Uh, Note that uh, most behaviors that scientists have uh, looked at, from the most mundane to some of the most complex, have shown some degree of heritability, uh, indicating that there is some genetic contribution to uh, the behavior. And uh, one example uh, is a study by Robert Plowman, who's now at the Institute of Psychiatry in uh, London, Uh, comparing monozygotic, that is identical twins, with dizygotic, fraternal twins, uh, on uh, several measures of sociability. Uh, And here uh, is a selection uh, of his data. Uh, The uh, red bar uh, indicates um, the identical twins. The blue bar uh, stands for the fraternal twins. Uh, And if you look at the degree of correlation Uh, between the twins in each pair, the average uh, degree of of correlation is what is uh, being graphed here, Uh, you will see that monozygotic twins show a much higher degree of correlation in their behavior than dizygotic twins, whether it's talking to a stranger, especially whether or not they look at a stranger to a somewhat lesser degree uh, approaching uh, a stranger, uh, suggesting that there is some degree of genetic influence on these very uh, elementary behaviors that are occurring 
relatively early in life. And I could have shown you a dozen examples uh, of similar sorts of behaviors that have shown similar effects. However, you will also note, indeed you'll note from that same uh, graph, that no behavior is entirely determined by uh, genetic factors. Uh, even the highest correlation, which approaches 0.7, uh, is not 1.0. That is, there is not an perfect uh, match between the uh, behaviors of two identical twins with identical genetic endowments. Something else is going on to affect these behaviors in addition to the uh, genetic influence, whatever that may be. Moreover, to complicate things here, it is unlikely that complex behaviors like those measures of sociability that you just looked at are influenced by a single gene. It is much more likely that we're dealing here with complex traits that are affected by multiple genes and multiple gene products, each one contributing only a small portion of the variance and problems with each one potentially contributing to problems in uh, the behavior of interest. And finally, by way of background here, uh, we have to uh, inquire into how this uh, effect of genes and of something else, presumably the uh, environment beginning intrauterinely, in the intrauterine environment, and extending postnatally and, and on into adolescence and adulthood, uh, how those two come together to affect uh, the behaviors uh, of interest. And the leading hypothesis uh, at this point in time is that genes that are linked to behavioral disorders are likely to have their effect by heightening sensitivity to environmental uh, occurrences so that uh, uh, with one genetic endowment, uh, a trauma may affect uh, a person quite profoundly while uh, the person sitting next to him uh, in, in a chair uh, may have a much lesser effect because of her uh, somewhat different uh, genetic endowment. So genetic loadings may be necessary but not sufficient to induce behavioral disorders. Now to the key example that I want to focus on with you today, which comes from a study published in Science uh, just a couple of years ago by Afshalom Caspi, Terry Moffat, and their colleagues at the University, uh, at the Institute of Psychiatry in London and at uh, the University of Wisconsin, uh, taking advantage of a really unique sample uh, that exists in New Zealand, a sample of uh, uh, men and women, although for this study, uh, for reasons I will explain, only uh, the men were involved, uh, who were ascertained at birth uh, at this point in time, roughly uh, over 30 years ago, uh, and have been uh, interviewed and assessed uh, in a variety of ways approximately every three years since. Uh, and the data from the study we're going to be talking about comes from the 26-year follow-up. The study is still going on, and uh, follow-ups are still taking place, and focuses on uh, a uh, almost the entire male sample here, 442 uh, men altogether. Uh, Caspi and his colleagues uh, collected uh, uh, samples uh, from these 442 uh, males and assayed them for 
the activity of the monoamine oxidase A gene. And without going into a lot of details, some of you uh, will find this uh, already uh, familiar, uh, NaOA is an enzyme that sits in the uh, membrane of the mitochondria uh, of the cells and breaks down uh, catecholamine neurotransmitters. The reason why it was of interest to Caspi and his uh, colleagues is because uh, we vary uh, among us in the extent of our MAOA production. And whether we're high MAOA or low MAOA uh, depends on the promoter region of the chromosome that sits adjacent to the MAOA gene. Some promoter regions simply promote the production of more uh, enzyme than uh, others. It depends on the number of repeats in the uh, region. Uh, And by uh, doing the genetic analysis, Caspi and his colleagues divided this sample into two groups, low and high activity. Now a word on why, at least one of the reasons why women were excluded from this study. The MAOA gene sits on the X chromosome. So if you're looking at uh, men, you have just one gene to look at, and you know whether the activity is high or low. Women will carry two alleles uh, of this gene, and uh, you won't know which one is uh, being activated uh, primarily uh, in any given person, which makes this analysis uh, much more difficult. Uh, As well, uh, as you'll see, uh, given lower rates of violence in women, uh, men give you much more uh, of an outcome measure to, uh, to study. In any event, the subjects were grouped into high and low categories. Now, why MAOA? Well, MAOA in a previous uh, report in science, just about a decade uh, earlier, uh, had been uh, linked in a very unusual Dutch kindred uh, to uh, violence and other antisocial behavior. Uh, Brunner and his colleagues identified a kindred in in Holland uh, in which uh, the males uh, exhibited a syndrome of mild mental retardation, uh, criminal and other antisocial behaviors, ranging in severity from rape to shoplifting and minor quarrels, uh, and... uh, Uh, histories uh, associated with that of uh, incarceration. Uh, Assays uh, revealed not just low MAO activity in uh, in this kindred, but absent MAO activity uh, in the uh, men with the uh, relevant allele. Uh, And so Caspi and his colleagues thought that uh, looking at the very intensively studied Dunedin, New Zealand uh, cohort uh, would give them an opportunity to explore the association between relative levels of MAOA uh, and uh, violence and other forms of antisocial behavior. But they found, as I'll show you uh, graphically in a moment, that low MAOA activity by itself was not significantly associated with violence uh, in the sample. However, If you looked at subjects who had low MAOA and a history of maltreatment uh, as a child, there was a significant interaction 
that elevated rates of antisocial behavior, including violence in that uh, portion of the sample, such that in that group, low MAOA and severe maltreatment, although they comprised only 12% of the sample, they accounted for 44% of the criminal convictions uh, for violent crime uh, in the group. And here's what this looks like uh, graphically. So the dark line uh, is low MAOA activity. The lighter line are subjects with high MAOA activity. And you'll see at the right-hand uh, side, I'm sorry, at the left-hand side of the, uh, of the graph uh, that uh, there's no significant difference in the uh, composite index that they constructed of antisocial behavior uh, based on MAOA activity in the absence of childhood maltreatment. Nor is there a difference uh, although antisocial activity uh, rises for probable uh, maltreatment. Uh, and if you're interested, I can tell you how they characterize that later. But when you get into severe maltreatment, that is a highly significant difference uh, between those two groups, suggesting a gene-environment interaction here between low MAOA and childhood maltreatment. Indeed, 85% of the subjects who had uh, both uh, indicators uh, present developed some form of antisocial uh, behavior. The study has uh, been replicated, or several replications have been attempted uh, to date. Uh, some of them have succeeded in replicating these findings. Some of them have failed to do so. A recent meta-analysis supports the positive association uh, that was found here, and at this point, it seems likely that it is a real finding. Now, this study in particular has sort of opened the eyes uh, of many people in law and criminology to the potential impact of behavioral genetics on their fields, in particular on the concepts that uh, are uh, used routinely uh, with regard to criminal responsibility and approaches to the potential prevention of and the ultimate punishment of criminal behavior. And I want to pose the first of those questions uh, for you, which is how this knowledge of uh, behavioral genetics uh, should affect, if it should, our determinations of culpability. So here's the problem. Under Anglo-American common law, uh, in, embodied in statutes in, in uh, most jurisdictions, uh, we have categories that we have created to excuse defendants from culpability when their capacity to choose their behavior is significantly impaired. And I'll give you just two examples. One is the well-known insanity defense. Uh, according to which we exculpate people from responsibility for their crimes if they are, in one of the leading formulations, substantially unable to appreciate the wrongfulness of their behavior or to conform their behavior to the requirements of the law. Uh, and as another example, the automatism defense, actually for reasons that have always bewildered me, much more prevalent in uh, Great Britain than here in the United States, but for example, uh, were a sleepwalker uh, to commit a crime while uh, walking in his uh, sleep, uh, that uh, would not be considered uh, to constitute a punishable uh, criminal act, uh, 
he would uh, plead under the automatism uh, defense and be exculpated on that basis because his ability to choose what to do in that state, his conscious control over his behavior was significantly uh, impaired. And so people are now beginning to ask if mental disorders that impair appreciation of wrongfulness or ability to control our behavior negate culpability, well, how about these new findings uh, on genetics? Why shouldn't genetic determinants, for example, low MAOA activity, have the same effect? And indeed, it did not take long, uh, in fact, uh, just a few years after the Brunner study, the Dutch cohort, uh, was published and well before the Caspi study was published for a, uh, a writer in a law review to propose a new defense uh, that she called genetic determinism under which an actor would be excused for his or her conduct if as a result of genetic predisposition the actor either didn't perceive the nature of her conduct, uh, didn't know that her conduct was wrong, or was not sufficiently able to control her conduct so as to be held accountable for it. Now, this is not the first time uh, that uh, issues of uh, genetics have entered into uh, the discussion in uh, the criminal law. If you flip the clock back to the 1970s, uh, you will recall a uh, uh, highly... Uh, controversial uh, set of data that were uh, being published uh, at that point in the 60s and 70s, uh, suggesting that men with an extra Y chromosome, the so-called XYY uh, uh, genotype, uh, were at increased risk for acts of violence. Uh, and based on those uh, studies, uh, a number of defendants attempted to introduce evidence of their XYY status to negate their culpability. And basically the argument was, we know that people who have the XYY uh, uh, chromosome uh, abnormality uh, are uh, more likely to commit crimes. Uh, therefore, it's not their fault that they commit these crimes. There's something in their genes that make them uh, do it. Uh, therefore, we should be uh, exculpated from responsibility for uh, our acts. Now, maybe not surprisingly, uh, the courts uniformly rejected uh, the defense. Uh, and as uh, most of you know, the link between XYY and uh, violent behavior was later disproved. The original link appeared to result from the fact that the populations that were initially surveyed were incarcerated populations. And in prisons, it turned out, well, you know, you know how that works. Uh, when general population surveys were done, it was found that XYY might correlate with lower intelligence. It might correlate with uh, uh, impulsivity and minor uh, criminal uh, offenses. Uh, but there was no evidence, in fact, that it correlated with uh, a higher rate of violence. But the approach of the courts, in fact, reflected a broader legal skepticism about arguments regarding non-culpability in general. And, and this is taken from Justice Black's concurrence in Robinson versus California, a case that dealt with the question of whether the status of being a drug addict 
was in itself a punishable offense, which the court found that it was not. But Hugo Black had, had the following to say. Almost all of the traditional purposes of the criminal law can be significantly served by punishing the person who in fact committed the prescribed act without regard to whether his action was compelled by some elusive, irresponsible aspect of his personality. And so uh, as the courts more recently have dealt with cases involving multiple personalities, or at least alleged multiple personalities, where defendants have claimed that uh, I wasn't the one who committed the act. It's not fair to punish me. It was you know, my alter, Joe, who was in charge of my body at that point in time, who committed the criminal act, and, and you should punish him instead. Uh, the courts have generally responded along the lines that Justice Black suggests, namely saying, look, we don't really care how many of you are in there. Uh, one of you did it. <laughs> And so you're all going to jail for it. Um, but it reflects this skepticism about what happens if we uh, open the door too wide to non-culpability uh, claims. Uh, the law views persons as acting intentionally and uh, recognizes that all of our behavior is subject to causal influences, social causes, interpersonal pressures, biological uh, imperatives. Uh, but from the legal perspective, the mere presence of causal influences doesn't negate ultimate responsibility that we all have to control our behavior. Only in those rare cases when those influences overwhelm our rationality or our ability to control what we're doing, Will the law recognize us as non-culpable? And from a philosophical perspective, you might say, using contemporary language, that the law is reflecting here the principle of compatibilism. That is, that the presence of causal influences, acknowledging that there are causal influences, is not inconsistent with the ultimate ability to choose. You would also note, as I think uh, Justice Black uh, uh, noted, uh, that this has a strong utilitarian consequentialist justification, that removing incentives to conform to the law uh, is likely to increase the rate of law breaking, human beings being the kinds of animals we are who respond to incentives uh, the way we do, and regardless of uh, how we want to deal with uh, genetic influences and, and uh other causal influences on our behavior, uh, we're probably all better off nonetheless holding people responsible uh, for their acts. But I, I do want to suggest that uh, we have already begun uh, to see uh, the introduction of genetic evidence uh, at criminal uh, trials. And this comes from a transcript of a California case that, that uh, was sent to me uh, in which a psychologist uh, who claimed that he was an expert on this area in part because he went to graduate school with Terry Moffat, who along with her husband, Avshalom Caspi, published the data in science, uh, testified about uh, the defendant uh, and his MAOA uh, alleles and testified that he was a low-activity uh, MAOA uh, individual and uh, was suggesting that therefore he was less culpable for his behavior. So this is the cross-examination by the district attorney. 
Are you saying that the defendant, because he has the MAOA gene and because, in your opinion, he suffered maltreatment, was unable to control his behavior and that caused him to commit these three murders? No, I'm not. And in fact, the defendant could easily have made a choice as to whether or not he wanted to commit the three murders, couldn't he? Uh, I don't know how easy or difficult his choices are. But there's nothing in the MAOA gene or the severe maltreatment that would make him commit these murders, is there? I don't know. Well, at the very least, the psychologist was being honest here uh, because it is, in fact, impossible uh, for anyone to say in a particular case that a murder or another crime was committed because of someone's uh, genetic endowment. And at this point, it's moreover impossible to say that the person could not have avoided committing the crime had he elected uh, to control his behavior. And so the utility of genetic evidence for purposes of non-culpability today and likely into the future as well is actually fairly slim. But there's one more area that I want to talk with you about, and that is the sentencing realm. Even if uh, we uh, find it difficult to accept that genetic predispositions are exculpatory, maybe they should be seen as mitigating. Maybe we should take them into account when we're sentencing people. The argument would be, look, sure, the defendant could have chosen ultimately what to do, but it was harder for him uh, because he had low MAOA levels or some other degree of impairment to make that choice. And we ought to have a little sympathy for his uh, situation. It's akin technically to what you might call a diminished responsibility claim. And sure enough, within uh, two years of the publication of the Bruner article, a capital defendant in Georgia uh, was already requesting that he be uh, assessed for his MAOA level uh, there are currently, there is currently a team of uh, forensic psychiatrists and psychologists in Tennessee who do MAOA levels on every defendant uh, that they're asked to evaluate and provide testimony of this sort uh, at uh, sentencing. Uh, but there haven't been many cases that have reached the appellate level uh, yet. Uh, and of course, this raises a very interesting a question for us. That is whether the genetic propensity to commit criminal acts should mitigate. Now, uh, imagine yourself as a defense attorney in these cases and the arguments you have to make. Your Honor, I'm asking you to have sympathy on my client because his genetic predisposition makes him more likely than other people to commit criminal acts, okay, in the past and in the future as well. And so, as the defense attorney, you're begging for mercy on the grounds that your client is more likely than the average defendant to do it again. Not an easy argument to make, and I suspect not one that will be terribly persuasive uh, to most courts. We can also turn this around. If genetic evidence may be uh, introduced as mitigation, perhaps it can also be introduced in aggravation particularly in states like Texas where in order to impose the death penalty, uh, a jury must find that a defendant is likely to commit future acts of violence. One could imagine, although we haven't seen it yet to my knowledge, uh, a prosecutor introducing uh, this evidence in order to establish the uh, greater potential for future dangerousness of this uh, individual and that raises a a host of uh, related uh, legal issues. 
I'm not going to have time to talk about another area here, which is uh, the uh, potential use of this information for uh, genetic screening for the prevention of uh, crime, but you can imagine what those issues are, and perhaps you might want to ask me about them in the uh, question and answer period. So let me just conclude. Um, our knowledge of the bases of behavior, the genetic bases of behavior, has grown remarkably in the last decade and a half and is likely to continue to grow. And the uh, Caspi et al. finding regarding the MAOA gene uh, is likely to be complemented uh, by similar findings regarding other uh, genetic loci uh, in the not-too-distant uh, future. Uh, we will know more about the predisposing factors uh, to crime. And this knowledge is going to raise many questions for us uh, about how we deal with this information in the criminal justice system. I would suggest to you that it's not likely that this information is going to have a dramatic impact on our rules for excusing behavior. Uh, it may have some greater impact on our notions of what constitutes appropriate punishment. Uh, however, my guess is that uh, whether or not treatment for the condition is possible uh, will be an important determinant of whether these data are seen as mitigating or aggravating. If there's something we can do to intervene, to make it better, and to reduce the subsequent risk of violence, mitigation seems more likely. That is, after all, the rationale for mitigation in cases of mental disorder and crime. But if the converse is true, and there's simply nothing we can do uh, about it, it's unlikely that our society is going to, design, to decide to bear uh, the additional risk that would be associated with either full exculpation or even mitigation uh, in these uh, circumstances. So let me uh, stop there and, uh, I guess, invite your questions. To find out about all that's happening at the intersection of science and culture, visit our website at scienceandthecity.org. 